0: Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today we have a very special episode with an old friend and one of my first inspirations in the real estate business, John Stewart. John is the founder and chair of the John Stewart Company, a San Francisco owner and manager of mostly affordable housing that he founded in 1978. His company is the seventh largest affordable housing manager in the country and also currently has about $900 million of active development projects in the pipeline. I met John back in 1981 or so in D.C. when we were both serving on a task force at HUD during the Reagan administration. Somehow, as a 23-year-old and not a Republican, I got to be a part of that task force, which was quite a learning experience for the young me. I remember at the time realizing through meeting people like John, that as a lobbyist I was in the wrong part of the real estate industry and wanted to deepen and focus my career in the business. I could not then have imagined that my career would wind its way to recruiting and podcasting, but meeting this larger than life guy like John truly did inspire me to continue to explore this as my industry. John and I have remained friends throughout and we're now neighbors in San Francisco. These stories of people who've made meaningful, successful careers in real estate are the purpose and essence of leading voices and hopefully provide grist for the mill, ideas for neural pathways, and inspiration to go attack your real estate career or your business towards your own success. John has been one of those people for me and I'm so happy to have had the chance for this interview. I want to thank our sponsor JLL, the global real estate professional services business that creates rewarding opportunities for its clients and team across the globe. For more on JLL, go to jll.com slash voices. Wishing you all great success and happiness in 2019. It's feeling like we're entering the end of this long, strong cycle on the business, so this will be an interesting year. As always, if you have comments, feedback, or ideas for great guests, go to the podcast website at leadingvoicespodcast.com or email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Enjoy the conversation with John. So, John, let's start just with a headline of what the John Stewart Company is, and then I want to hear your story, and then we'll come back to the sure. work that you do.
1: Sure. We're, right uh, Today, we have uh, about 1,400 employees um, in five offices in the state. Our mission statement basically is to own, operate, and develop uh, mixed income, mostly low income housing, uh, mixed use, and mixed age. So if you were to say to me, "What's your ideal project?" I would say something that has mixed age, some seniors, some family, some moderate income, and some very low income uh-huh. the inclusionary concept and uh, mixed use we've had we've have several projects where we have restaurants they're, although they're painted the backside, the community loves it and we have s- so some retail mm-hmm. So that's where we are now we have. The company is owned by, we have we have five uh, equity uh, mm-hmm. persons. I've sold my equity. I'm board chair, but um, the current CEO who's been fantastic, Jack Gardner, did exactly what I did. He sold off pieces to long-term employees so that a lot of people have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Most of our key people have been there for 20 or 30
0: years. Our turnover rate is close to zero.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting turnover rate is a negative and it's a positive sometimes. so some change I always say and in, this keeps me in business but some change is good right No change is bad mm-hmm. but loyalty really matters. It does. And I think we've had
1: I think we have high trust high agreement uh-huh. mostly in the company. you know the combinations high trust high agreement, low trust low agreement is bad that would be. but sometimes um, high trust low agreement with a devil's advocate
0: can be healthy. Mm-hmm. So you have somebody in there that is not gonna always agree with you. Absolutely true. So so John, I, I wanna hear your story. How we how we got to this place and how you built this career. And you're from California originally, right? Yes. Grew up here, went to school here, mm-hmm. Bay Area.
1: Got out as an undergraduate of Stanford back when pterodactyls were flying the earth in nineteen fifty six. Well you know I was a lowly liberal arts major, sort of focusing on uh, history and finance, and I, I really had no idea what I wanted to do, except I thought I would run something or manage something and be an industry of some sort. and And um, beyond that, I you know basically had no idea, but it, it was a time in the economy which was you know was totally serendipitous. L- little did we realize it. Recruiters came to the campus, and they recruited you, although, what did you know? Nothing. Right. So anyway, I got recruited by U.S. Steel, and the sound of it was very exotic, and open hearth furnaces and what have you, and how could that not be interesting? It was really boring. I lasted three years, uh, no, a year and a half before I left, before they fired me. Where'd you go? Did they
0: recruit you here, or was that They recruited me
1: in San Francisco, then shipped me to L.A., which is, uh, turned out, where I lived for a good part of my life until 1975 uh-huh. but I found that the that large corporation was stultifying and I had kind of more entrepreneurial bent and so when I was in LA I, I made a change to a large conglomerate called TRW which is then and is now a, a multinational and then um, what did you join them to do um, I was working on a number of different, you know, they had young management trainees and, and we were looking at various acquisitions. And uh-huh. um, I was, you know, just a, a staff guy and um, doing, you know, we were analyzing companies to acquire. Uh-huh. And this is in LA still. This is in LA. Yeah. And lo and behold, in the 60s, um, there was something called the space program. Uh, we had a war going on in Vietnam. We also had Gemini and Apollo, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, in that order. And TRW was a huge player. Yeah. Uh, and they actually moved 2,000 people from LA to Houston. Somebody said, you know, you need to go down there and help them get established. Right. Lo and behold, after uh, John Kennedy was assassinated, the the space center was shifted from Boston. Funny thing to Houston. Uh, and the chair of the Senate uh, of the Senate, uh, space committee was LBJ and he moved everything to Houston. And so I said, okay, that sounds interesting. And we get to move people and build some buildings. And, uh, so I moved my family, uh, to Houston from, um, LA and, um, there, something did happen. I mean, in, in careers, once in a while, there's sort of a choice point. You, you sort of, It's sort of binary door yeah, number one or door uh-huh. number two. I enjoyed it. And we, our whole group really saw the astronauts and what was going on close, up close and personal. But I was interested in sort of finding out more about life in a southern city, sort of southern Houston. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I would go down um, on a Saturday morning and check out what was known as the Houston Council on Human Relations, which was basically the liberal element of the Democratic Party. There were no Republicans in those days. So I went in. I said, "I'm looking to be involved. I'm from, you know, I'm from California. I have a passport." And uh, they looked at us askance. "What have you got?" And They said, well, "We've got crime. We have." uh education and i thought oh that's how many head angels can dance on a head of a pin yeah then they said we have this is the ultimate oxymoron we have low-cost housing what they really meant to say was high-cost housing for low-income people and i said i've always been interested in real estate and i i thought that would be a challenge uh so i said i'm okay i'd like to go on that committee i went on the committee about six months into it the chair decided to to leave and i ended up as a i think i was 29 or 30 i ended up sharing this 15 person committee um and you had to understand that houston in those days this is the 1964 or so right had no zoning and no housing code they viewed hud as nearly you know a uh, communist sort of the yeah, deep state,
0: um, uh, federal government, federal government, us what to do,
1: uh, uh, more uh, insured mortgages were looked at at scants They couldn't get them. They didn't qualify. So anyway, our committee got, we w- wrote some reports and I had met the mayor and, and, talked to him about this and that he wanted to see if I could get some money. Our committee gets sent some money from the Ford foundation. We went back, uh, to New York and, um, Lo and behold, we got then a large sum of money. as chump changed now. $700,000, this is 1964 or 65, for a low-income housing fund. I got interest. The low-income housing element in Houston was what really triggered me. I looked at the third and the fifth wards in Houston, and I thought that Watts looked like Beverly Hills. I had never seen anything like it. I looked at it, and I said, that is really an interesting challenge to see what we could do about that, because the conditions were really deplorable, really bad. So that 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 really was a change a change point, choice point for me. Do, am I interested in that? And then, lo and behold, the mayor asked the CEO of TRW to contribute, yours truly, as a young executive director of a big commission they were forming. To do something about their housing, which was a problem, so I was like 30 or so, and uh, they wrote to uh, Reuben Bettler, who was the CEO, and asked if they could contribute me for about a year. Uh, he, rather than make the normal check to you know the to the city for you know kind of standard contributions for right. corporations, he said okay. So I ended up getting an, an office from Humble Oil and a staff, and we had. C- Committees on land use, on zoning, which they still don't have, and on on housing code, which they eventually got, and qualifying for HUD-insured mortgages, and a bunch of other stuff. So I left TRW on a leave, but they paid my salary. And I worked for the mayor of Houston, uh, who was a little like, uh, he was a six-term mayor named Louis Welch, which is a real eye-opener. For me, a California kid, just watching watching the way they operate in in the South. And um, when they were on their way, money. The mayor said, you know, he sent me around asking for people to donate to the affordable housing fund. right? And um, uh, that actually, I got so interested in that I, that I, I knew that I wanted to do something in that field. So... Um, the they leave ended. I went back to Los Angeles. and Still, still went, with TRW. Still with TRW. And the other event, besides the mayor and the leave, was at HUD, under then-Secretary Romney, that mm-hmm. is George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, yeah. came out with something called Operation Breakthrough. A lot of people call it Operation Breakdown. But it was for manufactured housing. And, uh, there were a lot of competitions from corporations to an RFP that HUD put out. And so TR- I, I suggested the TRW that we should apply. We're an aerospace company. We have lots of, lots of people that are do strength of materials and yada, yada. And so we put together a proposal, which revolved, involved panels and wet cores and modules. And, um, it was a honeycomb structure with polyurethane and um, it it was basically the floor of an airplane made into a wall or a floor. And um, the worst possible thing happened. We got selected Mm -hmm. and um, we then built 500 units of section 236 housing in the Sacramento area. We set up a factory. We had 70,
0: Union guys working building modules and panels. So this is modular housing, not mobile manufactured housing, which really is mobile homes. This is attached. Mo- this is modular, modular housing.
1: housing, and and it qualified under the Uniform Billing Code, so it was it it was there were no code issues. Right, and uh, we also built 350 units of turnkey housing in New Mexico for their state uh, public housing. All in, we had close to 1,000 units, Mm -hmm. and um, we, of course, lost money uh, as if it was going out of fashion because we were doing very well as long as there was a demand, and another significant event happened. Richard Nixon, in one fell swoop with no announcement, closed down uh, the federal government in terms of loan commitments in HUD because he felt costs were getting out of hand and inflation was running rampant, he put a um, price freeze on. Right. People don't remember that of Nixon. Mm-hmm. Although Nixon was a strong, he was strong on affordable housing. Um, he, he basically cut out all the commitments that we had. I mean, we had 10 projects, five were in firm commitment that went ahead, and the other five in the pipeline died. Mm-hmm. So... If you're stuck with a factory and a lot of workers and you don't have something in the pipeline, you have a problem. And this problem will exist today for the people that are going into manufactured housing here right, uh, it's, right a, now.
0: it's a big deal again.
1: So uh, TRW said, we don't like the modular business uh, and we definitely are not suited to looking at real estate deals. I would appear before the board subcommittee and the board was there sort of looking like The Last Supper with the original cast. Wondering, I'm coming in with this risky deal in a neighborhood, and <laughs> they decided they really wanted to get rid of it. So I made an offer with a, a lot of phantom money. Uh, and, I, and i i was I was definitely not a candidate for uh, Wells Fargo's wealth management program, but I <laughs> I put together something, made an offer. And they, they basically said, assume the liabilities and you can have it. So I ended up with 500 units, as a general partner, 500 units uh-huh. of Section 236 multifamily
0: housing. And was, Section 236 is the old, that, that era's subsidized housing
1: program. Yeah, yes, and Section 236 is a section of the Housing Act, which has an insured mortgage and a low-interest loan. So we had that. Uh, I had the and they were in Sacramento and the whole Sacramento area. There were five 100 unit projects, rough, roughly 100 uh-huh. units. And when I did that, I started that. That started me in, independently with my own firm. Uh huh. And so and what? what year is this? Uh, this then is uh, 70, seventy-eight. Seventy-eight.
0: Yeah. Start your company.
1: I started it in seventy-eight. Uh huh. There was a little hiatus in there, but the punchline is I began it when I had these 500 units, which was at least a base to get started. I had some management fees, no cash flow, uh-huh. and we were losing a lot of money. And I, one of the few things I did right was plan for capital losses because I'd read every book that said that the, the, the dominant reason for failure of small businesses is undercapitalization. So I had assumed two years' worth of losses, and that's what it was. But um, I... I didn't manage those 500 units. They were managed by somebody else. And I said, you know, since I'm responsible for them as general partner, I think I want to manage them. So I started, I got into the management business. I backed into it. Uh-huh. My observation was that most of it was done very poorly, that the management in those days, you know, we're, we're talking now, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, Right. developers did low-income housing, and they uh, they looked at the the amount of operating costs that they would assume, and they sort of backed into a number rather than estimate what it was really going to cost. And then there were a lot of foreclosures. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things that I did was start uh, to buy other people's mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I got to know uh, the people in the Ninth District of HUD, and what I discovered was that when you get to know the HUD executives, um, they have a well-founded distrust of the private sector, people promising a lot but not delivering. Uh-huh. And so I I made it a point, My I guess my mantra then was for our employees, which I had began to hire, was return your phone calls and do what you say we're going to do. Just make sure that you tell HUD exactly what uh, the problems with the property are and don't drain the property. Uh So I bought a lot of uh, properties that were about to go into what's called assignment or foreclosure. That that HUD wanted somebody to come in, refi, put some money into, and make the code violations go away and make it better. Mm -hmm. And I made a business out of that for the first 10 years or so. I must have bought 20-plus properties. Uh And, um, and are you based in
0: Los Angeles or did you uh, move up to San Francisco then?
1: I I was uh, in San Francisco. Okay. So uh, gradually I, I would acquire, uh, you know, three or four projects uh, each year. And then I segued into, um, out of, not out of, but in addition to acquisition and rehab, into new construction. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, in the uh, 80s, I, I and a group of partners built a, 80, a project that was a transit-oriented project in El Cerrito by the BART station, mm-hmm. 80% market rate, 20% low income. But um, all the while, things were changing. Reagan had come in and he had put in the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program and HUD had begun to uh, not completely phase out, but we went from an era where, if you were if you were involved with low in- low income housing, right, back in the late seventies and the eighties, it was HUD centric. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would go back to HUD once every six weeks. How we met—that's right. That's how we met. So it be relationship with HUD, and your performance with HUD was critical, and we made it a point to. I think performed pretty well for HUD, and that's why we get we kept getting offers from HUD to acquire, refinance, bring in equity capital on deals which were really uh-huh. brain damage. This was um, in the late uh, mid '70s, the late '70s. Uh-huh. Uh, no, that's that's incorrect. It was in the mid '80s because Reagan was president, and when Reagan came in in about 1984 or so, he put in the low-income housing tax credit program, which really effectively began to replace the Section Eight program. Right. The uh, number of units associated with the federal government diminished, and the number of units under the low-income housing tax credit program increased. Mm-hmm. That that fed right into our wheelhouse because it was more complicated. The product was better. You actually had to have decent architecture. You had to compete for the credits and it sort of fit our mold.
0: Uh, But so it's interesting just to go back for a second. We'll talk about that phase in a moment. It's interesting to think about, and this is ancient history for, Anyone listening, yep. but in the days when everyone had to go with HUD, the first thing you described is that you had a relationship with HUD. I did. And you became one of the positive players there because there were tons of negative players who were taking advantage of government subsidy programs, slapping it up, making the dough, and getting out.
1: Yeah, well, I mean— Or not stewarding th- this is. It. I would say we got ourselves on the short list. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, people that that I think HUD could have confidence that we would follow through and make and improve. Right, and we also made it a point not to go in and and try to extract a lot of money. Usually, we took no money out for years. You get the, you get the property um, upgraded first before there's any cash flow, and usually there's not a lot of cash flow on these deals. And there there is a, a tension between earnings uh, and servicing the tenants right. and, and the property. For example, do you, do you fund reserves? How much do you fund reserves? Mm-hmm. How much do you set aside for the capital items that have a useful life of 10 years or so? Mm-hmm. And all sorts of games can be played. We, probably, we try to, not to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the world changed when uh, Reagan came in with his low-income housing tax program and we had to segue to that method of financing, which we still do today.
0: Uh-huh. And it played, and you said you liked it because it was complicated. Gave it you competitive was advantage.
1: It, it was, and we had we had hired people that were interested in it. In in our world, I look at it as sort of a renaissance um, environment. We we have people that do tax credits that are good on financing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm ahead of myself here, but right now we have typically anywhere from eight to twelve different financing sources. So people that really like the conundrum of how do you put together a deal with public and private financing, bank financing and equity and make it work. You have other people that like social services um, and others that are more architecturally inclined. Uh, And so I I, I think that that sort of uh, uh, was helped out our mission statement because I found that if you... Are just doing management, particularly low income with a lot of challenging residents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't last long. We've we've done a, a lot of formerly homeless programs, uh, shelter plus cash, where we have people that are really pretty much off the street and really needed a lot of work, alcohol mm-hmm. problems and drug. And it's very difficult to operate those projects um, for more than two or three years without turning over staff because. It's very it's hard exhausting. work. Yeah, yeah. So w- it it helps to have another line of work, and that would be the development side, the mm-hmm. acquisition, the rehab. We also had a small group of three or four people that did uh, consulting as owners' rep, where we looked, where we took jobs representing uh, owners uh, or developers, looking after. Um, the implementation of working drawings, making sure that the work was done as it was specified. So we, uh-huh. we we had a sort of a small consulting practice.
0: And alongside that, you always had property management. We did.
1: And that's a very good point, Matt. That the re, I, the, uh, starting off with a management base, which we now have 33,000 units in the state, starting off with a management base gives you a steady, gradually increasing mostly through management, not cash flow, uh, baseline. It's, mm-hmm. it's there. Uh, the combination, at on one hand, sort of washes, the other. We have a steadily increasing management base. We focused on more complicated um, management challenges. We have a lot of people that in our housing that are formerly homeless. Out of our 450 projects statewide, I'd say about 70 have formerly homeless, uh-huh. So we have a huge social services um, component of, uh, out of our 1,400 employees. Uh, and on the other hand, we have a group of people that really just love the idea of trying to put a deal together, uh-huh. affordable housing deal. And I would have to say usually typically one out of five make it. Uh-huh. For
0: every, maybe it's one out of eight. For every deal you look of at, course.
1: there's something that goes wrong.
0: That's, a, that's actually a pretty high percentage. But you're describing the lumpiness of development and acquisitions and the consistency of property management. That's right. And if people, particularly in the West Coast, think of your company, the headline is property management, property management in low-income housing, and you're the maybe biggest in California as a third-party manager and one of the biggest in the country overall for doing low-income housing
1: yeah we 're the largest in California and seventh in the in the country, but we're also now in the top ten or fifteen in the way of developing affordable housing uh-huh. so in the last twenty five years we've gotten into we've gone beyond the acquisition and rehab right and and uh, ownership to also developing new product uh-huh. And in doing that, we got ourselves into an, an, a mode, which I sort of began early on, joint venturing with nonprofits. Uh-huh. And back in the 80s, that was sort of uh, an aberrant marriage. Uh, I found it a good one. I like working with the 501c3s. Uh-huh. Um, and we've continued to do that. We have, I think we have probably at least a dozen nonprofits that we joint venture with, uh-huh. Uh and that is, it's it, to use a hackney cliche, it is synergistic because we put up our balance sheet and make the loan guarantees and right. they bring tax benefits to the project and they're good.
0: Uh-huh. And what's the difference between how your development team approaches and executes a development project and how the nonprofit's development team executes it if you're there or not? I'm trying to think about that. Almost none. Dynamic.
1: And I'll tell you why. Even though we are a for-profit, and we do, we have done some deals which were not low-income, although eighty percent are, mm-hmm. um, we are su- we are subject to the same regulatory agreements which are recorded on affordability. Right. So, say the Matt Slupin is going to build a hundred-unit affordable project. You will not be able to build that project unless you guarantee in writing. Uh, as a matter of uh, deed restriction, right, uh, that the residents will remain permanently affordable, right, and that and, and that guarantee is superior to bank loans. The, the bank lending is subordinate to that to that coveted, right. So, even if we want to want, wanted to, we can't flip the project from something which is affordable to subtly market rate, right. And so, and that isn't for us is not a problem. Uh-huh. That was always part of our mission statement, and it's the same mission statement than, than uh, some of the groups that we've worked with, are Bridge Housing and Mercy and EAH, and they uh, have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that we do some deals which are for-profit, but most of them are not, and if we, if we do something which is going to be using tax credits, by definition, it has the same level of
0: affordability. Right. It's interesting. So first, through our conversation, you've used the term mission statement Mm -hmm. three, four, five times.
1: It's it's always a a balance. You are allowed certain returns. I don't think there's a cap on the return that you can get on a tax credit deal. But as a practical matter, uh, because the rents are set at 30% of 60% of the area median or less, Mm -hmm. uh, it's not there. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a, um, uh, if you're going to be honest about what you're going to spend on the operating expenses and reserves and social services, there's right. not a lot of cash flow. Right. We work with. Uh, I'd have to say the Bay Area I think has the largest collection of really great nonprofits in, in the, the country. country. Yeah. More so than Boston. Yep. And uh, we we also work with. There's some really good for profits. Mm-hmm. I'm defensive on this point because our president has given development. A shabby name. Correct. When I think of really development, I I think of people like Jim Rouse, who did Columbia, Maryland. I think of positive, creative people. And we're working with related companies here. We don't work with them uh, directly, but uh, Lennar and Forest City. Look at the work that Forest City is doing. It's a free plug. Um,
0: Actually, at today per- their per- deal closed with Brookfield, so. Ah, Maybe the last day of Far City that you could say that.
1: Maybe. But they're doing Pier seventy. Yep. I mean, you, you're not gonna find work like that done by a committee in the public sector. And there's a role for government and there's a role for the risk takers. Yep. Uh, which I forgot to say, we've had some deals which have gone sideways. Right. I have one deal up in in Santa Rosa that I've been working on now for nineteen years, I've lost seven and a half million bucks on that wants to be affordable but um, it all everything that could go wrong did go wrong, uh-huh, And it was a transit deal, but the trains didn't run on time, and then we had bonds that were supposed to sell and they didn't sell, and the city ran out of money and there was a fire, and so those things happened.
0: Mm-hmm. those things happen not
1: not all of our deals came together smoothly. I can absolutely guarantee you that
0: that would be the history of doing deals, so there's risk would, to it,
1: yeah, but I, what I'm saying is I think. Uh, one of the things I like about this industry is that if you were consigned to a cocktail party for the rest of your life, uh, these are people that you enjoy. Uh, for profit, nonprofit, even the title people who can be the most boring in the world are exciting, <laughs> and I just I just like the group because everybody has kind of the same attitude. Nobody, people are going to leave change on the plate, and they're going to produce a product. Which I think is good. The product today in affordable housing is so much better than when I started. I'm sure that's back case. in the back in the '70s, the '80s. They had, they literally did have this sort of uh, Ford uh, They they all the architects went to the school of minimum property standards under HUD, mm-hmm. and that's what they got. Mm-hmm. And then you had to go back and redo the whole project. Not now. I can. This, one of our project in Hunters View in San Francisco. Uh, s- south of the ballpark, is a, if you go by and look at it, uh, you will be quite shocked to realize that most of the people in there now are all public housing. Right. And yet when I have people visiting it, they say, how much are those condos? At the risk of being a little uh, presumptuous here, they're elegant. <laughs> we have three great architects out there. Paulette Taggart, Dan, Dan Solomon, and David Baker. We have a lot of variety. And they're better looking than most of they The they're, they're 9 out of 10 of the market rate uh, multifamily products that you see, these are better looking and they're low
0: income. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a sec. And let's talk a little bit about homelessness in San Francisco and talk about a little public policy around building elegant housing for low-income people because that, that comment cuts both ways. One way is you love it, yep, and the other way is, God, maybe we should take our public dollars and make it go two, three, four times as far with less elegant housing for those being supported by our taxpayers.
1: It's a great graduate school discussion, please. I go, go there. back to the days when HUD used to, HUD had a famous congressman that built uh, pruitt at Igo in St. Louis that eventually got torn down. Their basic attitude was, if we're gonna house these poor people, we're gonna make it as inelegant as possible. Why do they need air, why do they need air conditioning? Why do we just have double-loaded corridors? Why don't we do that? You know what they got? They got foreclosures. I, I, my ar- argument is that form and function are connected. Uh-huh. You build a schlock product, people will treat it like a schlock product. You build something elegant, they treat it well. With respect, your turnover is less. Mm -hmm. Now, in general, uh, this is certainly true, the costs for any kind of housing, including affordable, have gone up dramatically.
0: The baseline entry-level cost to build something elegant or inelegant is so bizarrely high in California.
1: Yeah. Doing any any, uh, affordable housing transaction in the Bay Area, particularly San Francisco right now, will entail at least seven or eight different sources uh-huh. of revenue at the closing. This is in contrast to nineteen seventy eight when I did this. I optioned the land, I took it down, I got a construction loan, I took the construction loan with permanent financing. That was it. And Not now. Fun
0: that f- funded the rest at all work.
1: Yeah. There were no discussions with the neighbors. You just did it. You complied with the HUD regulations. Now and one of our latest projects at eighty eight Broadway, which we're doing uh, with Bridge, we've had 25 public meetings. We're into it almost four years and many millions of dollars. And we won't break ground, uh, we'll break ground probably in March. Mm-hmm. But it takes that long now. The development cycle from when I started the business has gone from, just say, two, two and a half years to typically five to seven.
0: Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially in the Bay Area. Especially in the Bay Area. It's the toughest to do that. It, It is, yeah. I hope that you're enjoying the conversation with John. A few words from our sponsor, JLL. What comes before any achievement? Ambitions.
1: Always. That's why we put ambitions at the center of everything we do. And why we always expect more. More for our clients more from each other, more out of every single day. And we don't just recognize ambitions, we thrive on them. We are 75,000 people from every corner of the globe, united in our passion to ask the biggest questions, to go further, dig deeper, and to always deliver. Achieving ambitions powers us through our day, and that makes us different to other firms. It makes us speak up, reach out, and above all, stand out. It makes us each
0: who we are, and it makes us all JLL. Now, back to the conversation with John. Let's change subject and talk about the pathway of your company. I know you bought and sold it. You sold it and bought it. (laughs) <laughs> so I and I want to think about how a company has long-term success and what evergreen company means and succession means. So talk about selling the company, buying it back and then talk about the dynamics of having the management company alongside the lumpiness of development and, okay. and just what that means for you guys.
1: Yeah, well in my career I've had I uh, had the advantage and disadvantage of clear crisp binary uh, choice points and one of them was that after I'd been in business uh, for roughly uh, 25 years or so I thought you know I'm getting long of the truth uh, and it's a good time for me to think about selling the company Fannie Mae had made me an offer and I didn't do it. Finally a company Southern California Edison came along and made an offer to me about 1996 or so uh-huh. and it seemed perfect because they wanted to buy tax credits from our our deals, and they wanted us to manage everything they had. And so, uh, at that time, I was the sole owner. I had been the sole owner since 1978 to the, the late 90s, and then I ended up selling to Southern California Edison uh, uh, to a group of people that I really knew quite well, they were big right. players in the equity business.
0: Uh-huh. I think, as you our know, friend Keeley Kirkendall, I think, was
1: he was there. Yeah, we had a lot of people that others. I knew and liked. Uh-huh. Um, but um, so I I sold it, and I did one wise thing. I said, "You you buy my company. I want to keep the company intact. I want it. I want it to have the same legal structure with a board. I want to be on the board." And one of their key people was the chair, but they had seven people on the board, and I was one of them. So I don't want to be uh, basically uh, uh, suffused into your corporate structure as a division or a department. I And not you gotta,
0: sold and you weren't leaving. You were the president. Uh, I stayed on. The they had a management okay.
1: contract with me to stay on for a period of time. Uh-huh. Um, and so— um, with that stipulation, I sold the company. Well, pretty much right off the bat, they brought they brought in a a new executive from Back East who had a different view of risk than I did. Uh huh. And I immediately got into it with him. Is that you know he thought we should just sort of you know, not do anything in the way of development or acquisition. Take and just basically do the management and uh, keep a low silhouette. And I said, that's not who we are. And um, we ended up having a real contretemps with him. And um, basically my, his their, their, their risk profile as a large corporation was not mine. Mm-hmm. And so um, long story short, I ended up uh, buying the company back. So they had a motiva- They were motivated, I, I would bring them stuff and they would say, you know, we just can't buy it. And it was a terrible time for Southern California Edison. Not not of their doing, I might add. Of course. And, and I think it cost the governor his impeachment. Uh-huh. So um, that combined with the fact that I had brought to them a couple of really large deals, one at Treasure Island in particular, which involved a ten million dollar upfront payment at risk on an empty island, they were nervous about that. We had put the I'd put together a deal where we would help guarantee that that we would take front end risk on it. I thought that we absolutely should do that deal. They didn't, or mo, some of them did. Uh-huh. We had a big argument over it. We agreed to disagree, and I ended up buying the company back. But I flunked this the economics. This part of my economics class, and of course, at Stanford, and that is that I I uh, uh, s- s- basically got to buy low, sell high, reversed. So I, I basically ended up paying more for the same company that I had sold. And so I, I paid probably twice what I sold it for because in the five years they owned me, we'd had a really great run-up. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We had good earnings. We were buying, acquisition, we had new development, uh, and then they got in trouble on the utility side, and they were getting more and more nervous about the risk. And so when I bought it back, uh, it was not the world's greatest deal, but I was happy as a clam because I owned it.
0: Happy to have your business back.
1: I really Unfettered. was. Yep. yeah. And when I bought it back, I, I did something, another occasionally, uh, serendipitously wise, I brought in new partners. I uh-huh. uh, brought in uh, uh, the, today the CEO, have it's, it's done a fantastic job, Jack Gardner, and people that had been with me for 20 years. Uh-huh. And I offered them an opportunity to come in at a very, very good economic basis. Uh-huh.
0: And when you brought in new partners, you weren't bringing in, a lot of people wound up bringing outside capital oh, no. partners. You no, were able to-
1: No, no, I didn't. No, I was able to finance through banks my own banking relationship. Mm-hmm. I offered them what I think was a good deal, and I think they think so today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sold 50% of what I had at that time to uh, five other people, and they gradually increased their 50% share so that we all had uh, one-sixth. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, recently, I stepped down as chair, and they owned it completely. Uh huh. And... Um, um, I've taken back paper, but and I have an economic interest, but I don't have equity. Right, and I'm happy to see it because I have the very people that I've been working with for years now end up owning and running a company. Right, which I like.
0: It's fantastic, and and that creates an evergreen company with your name on it that continues and with continues with people that you've mentored, and grown and care for.
1: And and a mission statement. We have no qu-
0: quarrels or. Squabbles over everybody is on the same page about what we want to do. Uh huh. And I don't know if you use the word triple bottom line, but that's what, how you behave. So the mission statement is the organizing principle. It's of the organizing
1: company. principle. That's correct. Uh huh. I'm now uh, at a sort of uh, not necessarily uh, company connected um, mission. I'm doing some things that. Uh, i'm i'm getting more more involved with in the homeless issue
0: uh-huh. talk about that
1: it's what you do when you uh, when you get to be 84. i am i've just recently written a piece in the business times about my views on what we ought to be doing on homeless in san francisco and i i do not think we're going to satisfy the our 7,000 unit units shortfall in san francisco which we haven't for years Right, and I think we keep repeating the same thing. I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we need to start looking at a regional basis, which is what I'm working on right now. And I think. I think we will. I think we need to begin looking at a broader scope with getting funding not just from San Francisco uh, companies, a la Prop C and Benioff. Right. But I think we need to look beyond that at some of the horsepower we have down. In uh, the Palo Alto so, area, uh-huh. yeah. So, um, but I, I think this homeless isn't going to go away. Uh, Bay Area has more like thirty thousand homeless. San Francisco has seven, uh-huh. and it's only getting. It, it's never gotten better. Willie Brown said it was intractable. Uh, Gavin Newsom made a dent on it, but nobody has fixed it. And um, so, I think we need to begin thinking about. Finding publicly owned open space and creating new towns in scale, not just for the homeless, but also for housing. Housing.
0: So it lets. It's interesting if you put the formerly homeless or the homeless in mm. one bucket, mm. and then you also think of the current uh, f- housing affordability issue. It gets up to people in the Bay Area of hundred percent. Eight, certainly eighty percent of median. 100% or even 120% can't afford today's rent ah. or a new home. And those problems exist alongside each other. Well, You can't just, solve one without the other.
1: No, that's true. And here, whereas we have this huge homeless problem where the city has no standing because of court rulings saying that you can't move somebody off the streets unless you have a bed for them. and We don't have a bed for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we have this homeless problem, which is really down at the 30% of the area median income category. Right. Then we have the so-called missing middle. Right. Which is teachers, first responders, uh, who make 80 to 120%. Too much
0: to be in a tax credit, too.
1: That's right. And that's, say, one hundred to 120000 a year. Right. They don't qualify for tax credits, and they don't qualify for the welfare tax exemption. Uh-huh. So whereas tax credit deals don't pay ad valorem taxes and get the benefit of the tax credits, if you're $1 over uh, 60% of the area median, you don't get that benefit. So the public subsidy required today, typically, for a tax credit deal for a family of four making $50,000 a year Uh um, is about – a little over 300000 a unit. If you double the income, the family of four making $120,000, $120,000 a year, um, the subsidy goes from 300000 to 400000 that's because the developer can't sell tax credits and doesn't get any benefit on the ad valorem tax side. Right, and it's one of those counterintuitive things. You think, oh, we double the income, they can service more debt, but, which is why when people move into, you know, they had a whole group of nurses come into the city a while back with jobs at UCSF and have to leave.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or the ones that don't are commuting, you know, 30, 40 miles a day.
0: Right. Well, it's an interesting dynamic because then the – traditional affordable housing advocates don't want the scarce public dollars to be spent on people up the economic food chain. So the, the, you're fighting with your brethren this, to deal with an issue that is equally important.
1: That is true. There, are, There is a cohort in our world that with all perfectly good intentions said, let's focus our resources on the neediest among us. Then there's another group says, you know, that we act, we operate in this sort of uh, eco sphere that includes people that teach our children. right.
0: We care about them all. And they're not here. The society doesn't work down.
1: without firemen and teachers and police.
0: Right. Absolutely true. So question for you, and you've been doing this for a long time, and you're one of the most respected, thoughtful public speakers on these subjects, but how do you change the public dynamic? so that developers, development, density, aren't the bad guys to the community, to the guy in the street. The guy in the street, and we think of nimbyism, which is the word around that. I always thought it was affecting low-income housing. I don't want low-income housing next door. They don't want anything next door. So density is gonna happen. If it doesn't happen, we're really in trouble. It's at the top of the agenda in California, How does our industry change the dynamic of that discussion so people accept the inevitable and then go for what could be great about it, not structure it so frustratingly it never happens and then it kind of dribbles out? And we failed as an industry at changing that discussion.
1: Often, um, I have to say that if you look as a case in point, uh, I think it was sb 35 that Wiener uh, act Mm -hmm. um, basically- uh, This is Scott Wiener, not New York Wiener. Yes, right. Uh, Got to get our Wieners. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Leave that one alone. Anyway, I think that if you put that law up as a referendum for the public at large, I don't think it would have passed, but it passed this legislation and was signed by the governor. So there are some things that have to be done, I think, top-down- Legislatively, but that might that uh, might not pass if you if they were subject to a vote of the populace. Uh I'll give you a case in point in Santa Rosa, they have no housing. The city is broke. They uh, wanted to um, get support for a hundred and twenty-four million dollar bond that would be for housing only, affordable. Since
0: the state environmental Protection code, but it really is the oh, way to wedge in anything. Uh, there are to many say ways
1: you can use to kill a project, and and uh, neighbor, you know, neighbors who oppose a project, affordable or not, can uh, figure out ways of suing, uh, suing on density issues, noise, shadow, etc., and tie you up for a long time. And what they all know is that if you're applying for financing on affordable. There are drop dead in service dates, and if you miss them, Mm -hmm. all your financing collapses. Right. So they really have you over a barrel. Mm -hmm. So um, there is a huge tension on that. I think the legislation that it's going to resurface again on density bonuses around transit quarters, I support entirely, Um, and I think that eventually that will pass. It should. I think it should. Yeah. The other thing that's going on right now that's intriguing is we have some projects which for the first time have no parking ratios where uh, even some of the neighbors said, we don't want a big parking structure. We want people using Uber and Lyft and city car share.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is a positive
0: change. It changes the numbers big
1: time. Changes the numbers. And you can see that the dynamic for, if you were building big, rigid, hard-to-remove, Concrete reinforced with ramp parking structures is now looked at as being pretty risky because, what happens in five or ten years, when we're not using cars the way we used to? How do you get rid of that structure? But the
0: architects are building it in order with the flexibility to transition it in five years, which is inevitable to something else. Be it's That's where right. Amazon could deliver their packages. Right on.
1: We have a we have a project we're looking at where uh, the a German system called Klaus. That is two and three levels of stacked cars. It's hydraulic. Yeah. And it's very effective, and it takes up almost a lot less space, and you can remove it right. if you want to. Uh-huh. So you can just see the the the, 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 the nexus between traffic and, and transportation and housing is getting closer
0: and closer. You know, what, what does that mean as a contribution to the world being a, a, a mentor and an inspiration for folks that way?
1: Oh, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people looked at me as a reco- recovering Republican. Uh-huh. And uh, that uh, I was more, more of a pragmatist. I forget the labels. How do we get this job done? Right. And uh, I, I always was never interested in gated communities. Oh, I think it's fine if people want to build them. Uh, I liked working with both for-profit and nonprofit partners. And uh, working with people with all ages and different disciplines, which is why I think it's a great area. I don't know whether I would call it an industry or not. We've always had trouble defining what it is we are. Right? Are we an industry when we are really a collection of transaction people? If you look at that, everybody's trying to put their deals together and we compete in a very friendly manner, yeah. basically. But it is a, a large cohort with a similar mission statement. I guess I would describe it that way. And I just, uh, I, I uh, maybe my contribution to it was that I lasted this long. Uh huh. <laughs>
0: I think it's a whole lot more than that. Uh, it's interesting. It is an industry, so I, I view it you- as systemic. Holistic business, you do. Okay. Luckily, in what I we feel do, better a, in what we do, there's multiple systemic holistic businesses in different spaces. But both a multifamily industry that is truly an institutionalized industry at this point, and then the affordable housing component of that, which yes. is a subset. Right. Uh, both are their businesses. There's no doubt, and they're businesses where I think you find more collaboration and realization that if we all win, the business will do better than if I compete and put you out of business. People aren't really interested in that behavior pattern.
1: That's why we have good advocacy groups. The Nonprofit Housing Association, I'm doing in California. I was, I was one of the first for-profit right members of the board i was their 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 house capitalist insect yeah on the board mm-hmm. now jack gardner was on the board so we have a lot of that and we all advocate we're all supporting uh sb uh one and three i think it was the two and the four billion dollar bonds at the state level mm-hmm. we we op- advocated for prop c in san francisco uh, there was another prophecy. We, so we all, we move, on, we advocate for certain kinds of legislation. We None of us advocate for certain deals because we don't right. want to get into the, uh, the reads that much. But we want to do it at a, a larger 30,000-foot um, level. Mm-hmm. And we're active with Sacramento. All of it. Everybody is. Everybody wins if we do that. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, again, back to how do you change the discussion and how do you work together as an industry to change the public perception of these things that really have to happen and that people are scared of. I
1: think one way you do that we have found that's been successful. We had a lot of people that opposed one of our the uh, projects, uh, and actually in Hunters View, mm-hmm. and. Um, and some others uh, uh, because we had almost entirely low and very low income. And so we took them, and we did this with 88 Broadway. We took them on a tour of our project on Bay and Taylor. It's called North Beach Place. 348 units, seniors, families, mixed income, mixed use, mixed age, exactly in our wheelhouse. We take them inside the units. We show them what it looks like. On balance, it's a lot better than what's in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And we have a really good record uh, on turnover. We have almost no turnover because people who live there realize that if they're not going to live there, they'll lose certain benefits on the rent, and they're very well, uh, very much aware of that fact. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I find that t- taking people... Uh, not just in drive-by, but taking into the project, having them talk to our management, seeing the screening that we go through, seeing that the security that we have, and security is a huge issue for everybody. You ask, you ask some of the people that we have that were formerly in public housing and now live in our housing, say, what's the number one issue? It isn't the washer, dryer, or all that. It's security. Feel safe. They feel safe, and that's we spend a lot of time on that.
0: And it's interesting if you think societally about what you do, the cost to not do it is actually tremendous. No question. And one of the measurable metrics
1: on that is the comparison of cost between housing a person who's homeless and having them homeless on the streets. Right. And having having somebody homeless in the street typically costs about seventy dollars to $80,000 a year. That's because although they don't have a mortgage because they're sleeping on the street, they end up in emergency care usually four times a year. All sorts of other things occur the way it is. Yeah, police, Police calls, what have you. It's extremely expensive and you compare that to the cost of Section 8 or tax credits to house the same person and the stability you get out when they're actually sheltered with their own room and bathroom, it's a no-brainer.
0: And if there's a kid, that kid stands no chance versus uh, the kid who grows up in a stable environment. Uh, you bring up a great
1: – most people chance. don't realize there are a lot of homeless that have children.
0: Right. Yeah. So, John, um, last question always in the podcast is if you had five minutes with a person getting into the business today and thinking of a career going forward, young person, what, what would your advice be?
1: Um. I, my advice would be is to think about it sort of in generic terms, in terms of your own personal, back to this word, mission statement. Right. If you're in this business, there there is a lot of the helper profession mentality has to come into play, mm-hmm. particularly in the social services side. If you're in the business to make a lot of money, um, then it may not be for you. But if you're in the business to make a reasonable uh, income and are willing to assume certain risks, because what I haven't said is that some, some people in this business go out of business because they took foolish risk. Anytime you have a development risk and you have to sign recourse notes and other things like that and guarantees, there's a risk. Right. So you have to be able to have a certain tolerance for risk on the development side. You have to be able to accept the fact that you are not going to make the same amount of money that you might make on the upside if you were in the market, which was completely market rate. Right. right. Where you, you know, you were you're producing a product that rents for five dollars a square foot. You're mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. So you have to accept that. Uh, and you again, you're also going to be in the social services uh, world, but. I think that one of the things that, uh, to me, is very positive, and that is if you're in this business, you're producing a product that you can kick. You can kick the tires. At the end of the day, you end up with something where people, you've contributed to the community and to the society mm-hmm. in both physical and a design mm-hmm. with good design. I think mm-hmm. that's it's essential, very essential. And you're making a reasonable income.
0: Mm-hmm. It, interesting. Reasonable income. Can mean creating net worth. So this doesn't mean not creating net worth. No, it's, you can create net good. worth. Sure, you have good life. Yeah, and and it's interesting. It may be we may be back to a generation of young people whose generational ethos says this matters because the millennial generation wants to make a difference and they want to have meaning in their lives and their careers. That's driven you through your career, and driven me throughout my career. But it again, I, you may have more people who want to find that balance of making a difference and making a good living.
1: I think that's very well said. And there's a reason why you do well in your world of placing executives um, in our world is because you understand it. I I'm, mean, I'm, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm looking at you. You know the business of building, developing, and operating in this context, and you know it not just from the development standpoint, you know it from the political standpoint. Right. You know it from how neighbors in, interact and what have it, which is another thing I didn't mention, another element you have to be able to handle in this
0: business is politics. Yep, big time. Hey, John, thank you very, very much my for pleasure, the conversation. My pleasure, We really enjoyed little... it. You're a very knowledgeable inquirer. I love to inquire, that would be my thing. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients, whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices.